Hello everyone and welcome to the January 5th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I am Eric Law, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Happy New Year and thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The, report of appeal, the Court of Appeal ruled that the new IBR scheme only applies prospectively. Here's what happened in the 300 consolidated lien cases leading up to this opinion. Elite Surgical Centers, Point Loma Surgical Center, and others had WCAB claims pending for billing disputes related to the facility fees for arthroscopic knee procedures, arthroscopic shoulder procedures, and epidural injections provided to injured workers prior to 2004. The defendants in the WCAB cases disputed the reasonableness of the charges. The petitioners paid only the amounts that they believed were appropriate for the services performed and the surgical centers claimed additional monies. The OMFS did not cover facility fees charged by the ASCs at the time. The disputed result in 300, the dispute resulted in 300 consolidated claims pending before the San Diego office of the WCAB. A 17-day trial was held and both parties presented extensive documentary and testimonial evidence. At the time, billing disputes were resolved through litigation before the board, but before the, WCAG, but before the WCJ issued a decision, SB 863 was enacted in 2012 and became effective in January 2013, implementing the independent bill review process. One month later, the WCJ issued his decision regarding the consolidated claims and determined the reasonable fees. He awarded approximately 28% of the amount that Elite customarily billed for such procedures. The defendant, SEGA, appealed. The Court of Appeal in the published case of SEGA versus WCAB and Elite Surgical Centers affirmed the decision of the board resolved the, and resolved the issue of the application of the IBR process to old liens. The DCA concluded that this legislation is ambiguous with respect to whether the IBR process was intended to apply to pending billing disputes or rather was intended to apply only prospectively to new billing disputes. The new IBR process may be utilized only if certain conditions precedent have been met and the deadlines for meeting those conditions have passed. To apply IBR retroactively would leave parties without a viable process to decide their dispute. The court thus decided to interpret the IBR provisions of SB 863 as operating prospectively. A federal judge dismissed a class action accusing the NFL of giving football players dangerous painkillers to mask their injuries. The lead plaintiff was Chicago Dent, a former was Richard Dent a former Chicago Bear. The court found that the lawsuit brought by more than 500 former players must be settled under the collective bargaining agreements between the NFL and the Players Union. The court further noted that no decision in any state, including California, has ever held that a professional sports league owed a duty to intervene and stop mistreatment by the league's independent clubs. The League has addressed these serious concerns in a serious way by imposing duties on the clubs via collecting bargain, collective bargaining and placing a long line of health and safety duties on the team owners themselves. These benefits may not have been predicted 
but they have been uniform across all clubs and not left to the vagaries of state common law. They are backed up by the enforcement power of the union itself and the player's right to enforce these benefits. In other words, the union is supposed to be looking out for the plaintiffs. In fact, former players in other cases have been able to arbitrate their grievances against the NFL or individual clubs, notwithstanding their prior retirement from the league. The players may now file an appeal or may, or may file an, a motion to file an amended pleading. Thus, this may not be the final word on this class action filed in San Francisco or the workers' compensation claims that may also follow. The Court of Appeal ruled that alleged malpractice and WCAB fraud does not toll the statute of limitations. Here is what happened in the case of Mendez versus Cottage Health Systems. Rosa Mendez filed an improper civil complaint in Superior Court against Cottage Health System, the parent organization of Santa Barbara Cottage, College Hospital, Cottage Hospital. The factual allegations were contained in an undated letter addressed to the staff at Santa Barbara City College, a copy of which was attached to the complaint. The letter stated that on October 28, 2010, Mendez was exposed to dangerous levels of radiation while assisting an x-ray te technician at College Hos Cottage Hospital. Mendez said she was working at the hospital that day as part of her coursework in the x-ray technician program at Santa Barbara Community College. After the exposure, Mendez alleged she began to experience severe chest pain and dizziness and blurred vision. Mendez brought, sought treatment for blurred vision in March 2011. Cottage demurred to the complaint, contending that the action was barred by the statute of limitations. In sustaining the demur, the court noted that Mendez was aware of the incident in 2010, yet did not file her action until 2013 beyond the two-year statute of limitations for personal injury claims. Mendez then filed a, a first amended complaint alleging that officials of SBCC, the attorneys who represented Mendez in proceedings before the WCAB, and the judge who presided over those proceedings, all fraudulently, fraudulently induced her to refrain from filing suit until after the limitations period has, had expired. The trial court sustained a demur to the first amended complaint without leave to amend. The judgment was entered in favor of Cottage, and Mendez appealed. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished case. Mendez did not file her complaint until 2013, so the court was properly found it the court properly found it was time barred. Even if Mendez had sufficiently alleged a claim for fraud or professional negligence, her complaint was also filed beyond the three-year limitation period that applies to such claims. Mendez's workers' compensation claim against Cottage was only pending from August 28, 2012 until November 5, 2012. Tolling the statute of limitations for the 69-day period would not have added, aided Mendez, who filed her complaint after three years after she discovered her claim. And now our fraud report. A former California Highway Patrol officer has been convicted of workers' compensation insurance fraud. A Sacramento County jury convicted Tony Yao on felony charges of failure to, to disclose a prior motor vehicle accident and resulting injury. 
making false statements in support of his workers' compensation claim, and filing a false claim. Yao was a CHP officer when he alleged he had suffered a work injury to his back. Evidence showed that Yao failed to disclose and concealed a 2005 motor vehicle accident that caused injury to the same part of his back. Yao claimed he was unable to work because he could not bend, twist, walk without a cane, and needed help with everyday activities such as washing and dressing. But video surveillance showed he was able to walk normally without a cane, bend and twist with ease, and that he was able to pound stakes in his front yard to mount a flag. Yao also claimed that he mistakenly gave the wrong date for when his injury occurred on his workers' compensation claim form and filed an amended claim to change the date. Evidence showed Yao changed the date to conform to information contained in his medical records in an effort to conceal his pre-existing back injury. Yao is to be sentenced on January 28th. 43-year-old Fernando Gallegos of Los Angeles was arrested for allegedly collecting workers' compensation benefits for one job while still working on another. Gallegos faced five felony counts of workers' compensation fraud and one felony count of perjury. Gallegos was allegedly injured while working in a commercial kitchen and claimed the injury made it impossible for him to work. An investigation by the California Department of Insurance revealed that Gallegos was actually employed at two restaurants performing the very jobs he claimed he was unable to perform. Gallegos received workers' compensation benefits of nearly $9,000 over a nine-month period. During this time, he allegedly perjured himself at a deposition by failing to report his other jobs. He also lied to his doctors by claiming he was too injured to work. This case is being prosecuted by the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Bail for Gallegos is set at $30,000. And in regulatory news, the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act is a United States federal law signed by President George W. Bush in 2002. The act created a federal backstop for insurance claims by creating a system of shared public and private compensation for insured losses resulting from acts of terrorism. The act was originally set to expire in 2005, but was extended several times. The current law expired on December 31, 2014. The expiration was seen as a potential catastrophe in the insurance marketplace by some workers' compensation experts. They reasoned that workers' compensation policies precluded insurance carriers from excluding catastrophic losses, and as a result, the increased risk of a massive claim loss from an act of terrorism could pose an unacceptable risk. The expectation was that carriers would simply exit the market rather than underwrite the risk leaving employers in a thin or non-existent insurance marketplace. It seems that this disruptive lack of insurance scenario did not occur on January 1 as expected. Congress failed to act on TRIA before adjourning for the year. This was a big surprise as most felt the House would be getting, the House would be the reason that TRIA did not get extended. The House passed a TRIA extension bill, but it was the Senate that ultimately failed to take up the vote. Why did this happen? Unfortunately, Congress has a habit of tackling unrelated riders, tacking unrelated riders onto bills. In this case, the House added amendments which deal with licensing of insurance agents and brokers. 
Some in the Senate were not comfortable with those issues, which kept the Senate from approving the House bill on TRIA. But the expectation is that Congress will take up TRIA after they reconvene this year. But you cannot assume the new Congress will pass a TRIA bill. So what does this mean to the workers' compensation industry? Back in February 2014, carriers started using policies that contemplated coverage without the TRIA backstops. Employers saw some carriers pull back from certain geographic locations, most notably in New York City, particularly in Manhattan. They also saw some carriers change the terms of their policies and only bind coverage through the end of the year, giving themselves the flexibility to renegotiate terms or terminate coverage if TRIA did not renew. The New York State Insurance Fund, faced with the prospect of having to provide coverage for employers if the private marketplace did not respond, but as the year progressed, progressed, something else happened. The marketplace responded. While some carriers pulled back in certain lo geographic locations, others stepped up to take their place. While some carriers tied their policy expiration to the expiration of TRIA, other carriers did not. Ultimately, employers were still able to obtain workers' compensation coverage in the private marketplace. What does this mean going forward? There may still be some policies out there that have endorsements allowing the carrier to cancel or renegotiate terms, but this does not appear to be a widespread issue. The workers' compensation marketplace has adapted to the absence of TRIA. At the end of the day, employers should be able to obtain workers' compensation coverage without the TRIA backstop in place. Rating agencies say the outlook for nonprofit healthcare remains dour for 2015 as hospital operating margins continue to face pressure from rising costs and weaker reimbursement. The three major credit rating agencies gave the healthcare and hospital sector a negative outlook this year, citing anticipated downgrades declining operating cash flows and ongoing uncertainties surrounding the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Standard & Poor's forecasted more downgrades than upgrades among not-for-profit health care providers for a third consecutive year. There would likely have been more downgrades if not for the high level of merger and acquisition activity which often precluded downgrades and in many cases Moody's Investor Service anticipated another 12 to 18 months of weak performance, with large hospital systems faring better from economies of scale. Moody senior analysts said the largest hospitals are getting stronger, while the small, small, smaller hospitals get weaker. And many hospitals have exhausted the low-hanging fruit for cost-cutting. At the same time, hospitals are expected to shift away from the traditional fee-for-service models in which more patient services led to more revenue. The Affordable Care Act and purchasers of health care are now emphasizing preventative care and reduced hospital stays. Fitch ratings said more uncertainty is on the way as Republicans with congressional control vow to repeal or defund parts of the Affordable Care Act. The rating agency was closely following an upcoming U.S. Supreme Court decision in the King v. Burwell case in which the court could effectively invalidate insurance coverage purchased through federally operated state exchanges. The Division of Workers' Compensation announced the increase of the mileage rate for travel expenses by one and one-half cent 
to 57.5 cents per mile, effective January 1. This rate must be paid for travel on or after January 1, 2015, regardless of the date of injury. Labor Code Section 4600, in conjunction with the Government Code Section 19820 and the Department of Personnel Administration Regulations, establishes the rate. The updated mileage reimbursement form is posted on the DWC website. The DWC posted a progress report on the implementation of independent medical review, one of the most important provisions of SB 863. The 2014 report provides an analysis of data gathered since the process took effect on July 1, 2013. Officials claim that this report shows we are on the right track. DIR Director Christine Baker said, we are now seeing the tangible effects and benefits of IMR and can expect further improvement to the process. In 2013, over 73,000 IMR applications were filed, of which 22% were found to be ineligible for review. IMR upheld 84% of UR decisions in 2013. A considerable increase in the number of applications starting in the latter half of 2013 posed challenges to issue, issuing timely determinations, but changes resulted in IMR decisions being issued in a timely manner by October 2014. The costs of IMR were reduced by 25% in April 2014. Nearly a third of IMR applications originated from the Los Angeles area. Most physician reviewers who provided decisions in 2013 were licensed in California. Physical medicine and rehabilitation and occupational medicine specialists issued the majority of IMR determinations. Nearly half of IMR treatment requests were for pharmaceuticals, most commonly opioids. The progress report is posted on the DIR website. SB 863 made certain changes to the California Government Code to require certification of interpreters who are used in WCAB hearings depositions, and medical appointments. Effective January 1, the government code will be amended to require certified or registered interpreters to, to state for the record in depositions the qualifications of the interpreter. This includes his or her name and certification or registration number, a statement that the interpreter's oath was administered to him or her, or that he or she has an oath on file with the court a statement that he or she has presented to both parties the interpreter certification or registration badge issued to him or her by the Judicial Council or other documentation that verifies his or her certification or registration accompanied by photo identification. It would be prudent for attorneys to ensure compliance with this new law at any deposition taken after January when an interpreter is used. It is not known if failure to comply would jeopardize use of the deposition transcript at a later time. Compliance with this new law would avoid this risk. The WCAB has posted a third 15-day notice of modification to the proposed medical treatment utilization schedule regulations to the DWC website. The proposed modifications require treating physicians to provide a clear and concise statement in the request for authorization when they are attempting to rebut the MTUS presumption of correctness. They must also provide 
a copy of the entire study or relevant sections of the guideline containing the recommendation that the physician believes guides the reasonableness and necessity of the requested treatment. The notice and text of the regulations can be found on the proposed regulations page. And finally, the DIR released its 2014 Legislative Digest, which provides an overview of new laws and vetoed bills that might affect our industry. AB 1035 extends the time period to file a dependency case with the WCAB from 240 weeks to no later than to 420 weeks from the date of injury for certain safety workers if the death was due to cancer, tuberculosis, a blood-borne infectious disease, or MRSA skin inf infection. Governor Brown vetoed a similar bill last year. AB 1746 requires that cases in which an unrepresented employee who is or was employed by an illegally uninsured employer be placed on the priority conference calendar at the WCAB. It must be held within 30 days after a DOR is filed in the case. AB 2230 allows SEGA to levy an assessment of up to 2% of direct written premiums for the payment of covered claims and expenses. AB 2732 makes technical, non-substantive, and clarifying changes to several labor code provisions amended or enacted by SB 863. It is of interest that the governor vetoed AB 2052 which would have established or expanded presumption of injury for safety officers. He also vetoed AB 2378, which would have overturned the June 2013 decision by the California Court of Appeals in County of Alameda versus WCAB, the Niddle case, which ruled that the period of safety officer salary continuation must be counted as part of the 104-week limit on TD benefits. AB 2616 was vetoed, and it would have established a statutory presumption that an MRSA infection that develops in a hospital employee who provides direct patient care in an acute care hospital is work-related. Other bills of interest that were signed into law include AB 326, which modernizes reporting requirements for employers reporting serious injury, illness, or death. AB 1522 creates the Healthy Workplaces, Healthy Families Act of 2014, which provides that as of July 1, 2015, employees shall accrue, accrue compensated sick leave to care for themselves or for family members as defined in the bill. Under this bill, employers shall provide up to three days of paid sick leave each year. The governor vetoed AB 2271, which would have restricted employers from requiring current employment is a requirement for a job. That's all for our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Eric Law, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news.